official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. Does anyone know where the longest list of questions in the Bible is? Does anyone know? Job. Yes, Job is correct. It's actually the longest list that God asks, but it's also the longest list of questions. And so this morning we are continuing our series that we started last week called Questions God Asks Us. And so last week we looked at a question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Could you turn this down just a tiny bit, Chandler? Thank you so much. You're so relaxed and good at what you do back there. So we looked at a question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And this morning, we're looking at a series of questions that God asks Job. God asked Job. And so with that, a uh, quick summary of the book of Job. We're going to run through this really quickly. The book of Job explores the timeless questions. Timeless questions, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we suffer? Why is there suffering in the world? And is God just and wise and in control? Timeless questions, right? Questions I'm sure many of us have asked at different times in our lives. And so we're going to be looking about at God's questions to Job and how they might engage these questions and how the wisdom that Job attains through these questions is actually a quiet sort of wisdom, that there's, there's a silence in Job's response to these questions. Uh, that's, that's actually a wisdom produced through God's questions. And so we're going to be looking, uh, exploring kind of those, those questions, but specifically the quiet wisdom uh, that can be gained through God's asking of those questions. Before we jump into those questions, just wanted to give us all a brief, even though we're pretty familiar with the book of Job, a brief kind of rundown as well of the summary of the narrative. It's, it's a, it's a long, longer book, and it's actually made pr predominantly of like dense Hebrew prose or poetry. And so chapters one and two, they start, it starts out in this kind of peculiar context, peculiar setting. It says in the heavens or in the heavenlies and, and God is there and there's all sorts of heavenly beings, angels, etc. With God, it's kind of almost a command center or a courtroom you might think of it as. And there's this interesting conversation between God and this other character who appears in the story and his name is the Satan. Uh, or, or it actually just means, Satan just means the accuser or the one opposed to. And so there's this conversation. And in this conversation, God brings up Job as an example of goodness, righteousness, integrity. And the Satan essentially pr proposes uh, an opposition, an accusation against Job. Well, that Job, in his righteousness, in his integrity, it's actually all for show. It's just in order, it's just because you bless him, God, that he is responding with integrity. And it's only because uh, he wants to continue receiving that blessing, receiving favor, receive this goodness, that he responds to you with integrity and goodness 
and righteousness. And he says, if you would let me kind of be involved in his life, uh, if you would let me, you would see that he wouldn't maintain his integrity. And so Job, God relents in, in this accusation and gives reign to, of Job's life to the Satan, the accuser. Peculiar thing. And we assume at some point that the narrative is going to answer the question of, well, like, why, why did that happen? And what happens is Job experiences an incredible amount of suffering. It's unfathomable. It's, uh, he loses everything he has and everyone he has, and he's left with dust and ashes. And that's just chapters 1 and 2. And then chapters 3 through 37 of the book of Job are actually a dialogue between Job and three friends and a man by the name of Elihu. And uh, essentially, the dialogue, and it's all in dense Hebrew prose, but it, it's Job declaring his innocence. And at first, he praises. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but still I will praise the name of the Lord. And he gives a, a case for his innocence, and he doesn't blame God. And then his friends step into the story, and they, they're essentially saying that, Job, you must have sinned in order for all of this suffering to come in your life. And it's this back and forth between Job and his friends. And all of them have reasons and explanations for the suffering. At one point, Job's friends even begin to kind of make up hypothetical sins that Job must have committed in order to experience the suffering that he did. And then at the end of this dialogue, uh, uh, Elihu shows up and he presents kind of like a counter argument that's a little bit closer to the reality of the situation, he says, because uh, Job eventually, even though he doesn't blame God at first in his frustration, pain, suffering, he actually rages against the heavens at one point because he's proclaiming his innocence, which God even says as well that Job was innocent, that the suffering wasn't deserved in the first couple chapters. But we see that eventually Job comes to the conclusion that either God is not just or God is not in control. And so Elihu shows up and he says, yes, Job, uh, uh, yes, you're innocent. And yes, um, God is wise and just. And so my explanation is uh, the best that I can come up is maybe, maybe this suffering that's in your life is to kind of prevent future sin. It's like an integrity character building situation for you. And with that, Job has no more words uh, to respond to his friends. And one scholar actually says, as this section concludes in chapter 37, that in Job's silence and in the, the final words of Elihu, it's as if the wisdom of the ancients has been spent and exhausted. There's nothing left to say. It's as if the wisdom of the ancients has been exhausted and spent, and the mystery to those questions remain. And it's there that the, the main dialogue kind of concludes in the book. And it's there that God gives an answer. It's like the wisdom of the ancients has been spent, and now God has something to say. But God's answer is actually a series of questions, a series 
of questions. And he sets up his response in Job chapter 38. So if you're following along, this is Job 38, and this is the NIV this morning. Then the Lord, and he speaks to him kind of out of nowhere, out of the whirlwind, in the midst of a storm. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And I love this. He says, brace yourself like a man. Another translation says, gird yourself. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. So, we're going to spend some time reading through a good portion of the questions that God asks Job, because in their breadth and exhaustiveness, I think there is something to be learned. So, are you ready to brace yourselves? Everyone buckled up? Ready for the ride? Okay. Where were you when I laid the foundation, the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. And we'll actually see almost like divine sarcasm here in God's response. It's awesome. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the cloud its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you, have you ever given order to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? It's a good question. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Oh, I love this. Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived for so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserved for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of the rain and a path for the thunderstorm to a water land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Still braced there? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become as hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion? 
over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? That's a life verse if you're looking for one. Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven? When its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Anyone? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and go strong in the wild. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkeys go free? Who untied its rope? I give the wasteland as its home, the salt flats as its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver shout, it ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand. This is my life verse, by the way. Unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. Job, the stork is so dumb. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet, when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse its strength or close its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting, its paws fiercely rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray? It laughs at fear and afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side along with the flashing spear and lance. Its frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds, the blast of the trumpet, it snorts. Aha, it catches the scent of the battle from afar, the shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command? It's build its nest on high. It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From, from there, it looks for food. Its eyes detect it. From afar, its young ones feast on blood, and where the slain are, there it is. One last question for Job. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Job responds. What would you respond with? Probably something like Job, like, what? I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, 
but I will say no more. The questions Job brings up, why is there suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Is God wise and just? Is God in control? God's answer is a series of strange questions about the stork and the Pleiades. Can you loosen Orion's belt? We don't get the answer we're expecting, but God's questions are actually a form of an answer. We want answers, right? When we ask those questions. And there are times in our lives when the only reasonable thing to do, the only healthy thing to do, the only human response to suffering is to ask why. We want answers. We want explanations. We want to understand why we suffer. We long. We ache for understanding, don't we? We do. We do. That's okay. That's healthy. But there's something I think we can learn about suffering from the book of Job, from God's questioning. And it's a type of wisdom. It's actually a part of three books in the Bible called the wisdom books, the wisdom literature. There's a type of wisdom we can learn in the midst of suffering from God's questioning. It's a type of wisdom that sustains and deepens our lives in the midst of suffering, even when we don't have all of the answers to our questions. God's questions, his response, it's funny, right? It's even almost sarcastic at times. And they're profound. But the thing that I'd like to point out about those questions, and the reason I rehearsed actually two chapters, and that's just like a sneak peek. There's some more if you continue reading, uh, is that they, those questions are exhausting. They're exhaustive in nature. And it's almost as if when the, when the wisdom of the ancients has been spent, that there is a wisdom that we come to only when our wisdom has been exhausted. The questions are exhaustive, not only in their breath, but in, in their capacity to exhaust our human imagination, uh, ex exhausting our own wisdom. Job, his friends, Elihu, they spent 37 chapters of dense Hebrew prose questioning God and giving their best answers to the suffering, and it just doesn't get close. And Job's response to God's wisdom is what? Hand over his mouth. I spoke once, I spoke twice, but I will say no more. God's questioning is an invitation to embrace the wisdom of God that sustains us in the midst of suffering God's wisdom transcends the answers to the questions, or it, yeah, transcends the answers to the questions we're asking. God's questions remind us that we're asking often finite questions of someone who has an infinite understanding of the universe. And God's questioning reminds us that there's a wisdom that comes from silence. There's a wisdom that comes from silence. Uh, there's a, a writer, Kierkegaard, 
he wrote of a man who was praying, and he said this, a man prayed. And at first he thought prayer was talking, but he, he became more and more quiet until in the end he realized that prayer is listening. Prayer is listening. A man prayed, and at first he thought prayer was talking, but he became more and more quiet until in the end he realized that prayer is listening. This is something I'm still learning how to embrace. This is something I'm still learning how to practice when it comes to prayer. There are times for questions. There are times for requests. There are even times for com- when the only healthy human thing to do is to, to bring our complaints and doubts and frustrations to God as well. But there comes a point when our capacity for wisdom has been exhausted And it's usually in that place where we begin to see the wisdom that can be found in silence. In silence. So, uh, those of you who have experienced any sort of suffering in your life know that usually attached to moments of suffering come moments of silence, where they actually become sacred moments of silence. And sometimes that's shared with others, and sometimes... That's found in solitude and God's grace and peace and presence uh, is made known in a unique way, sometimes through experiences that we can't control. Um, I'm thinking particularly of a a sacred moment last year when uh, we lost someone who had Church of the Wall was her church family while uh, she was attending UVM and she was a junior at UVM. Her name was Becca and she um, died unexpectedly in a, in a climbing accident. And our church, uh, even though you might not look, see all the college students right now because school hasn't started yet, we actually uh, end up becoming a home for a lot of college students at UVM and Champlain and St. Michael's um, and uh, CC, CCV, etc. And so there are a lot of people in our church community who are hurting and broken and uh, one of the leaders of a campus ministry, her name was uh, Jess Pafumi, but she opened up her home to a lot of these students, not just from InterVarsity, but from all the other uh, campus ministries who knew Becca and loved Becca. And uh, they invited Adam and I and uh, others from Church at the Well into the home. And, and uh, I can tell you, we spent some sacred moments in silence. We, there was times of praise that we had together and times where we were talking and sharing and uh, there was also a lot of sacred moments of silence. And those, we didn't create those moments. They just kind of happened. And we often experience those in our life. Um, uh, my wife and I have had uh, multiple experiences where we've had to sit in silence. And it was the, the only right uh, response to the suffering that we were experiencing. And so they come our way. And then we learn how to, in those moments, embrace the mystery, uncertainty, and pain that we're experiencing. But more importantly, in the silence, we actually begin to gain a wisdom to know that not only can we um, embrace the mystery, but we come to learn that God embraces us in the mystery. God embraces us in the pain. God embraces all of us in the suffering. And so things come our way and we experience it. But silence can also be something that we can all practice uh, as, a, as a spiritual discipline or as a practice in 
our lives. There's a writer by the name of Dallas Willard who writes a lot about the spiritual practices. And he actually says that the practice of silence uh, and solitude are actually the two most radical disciplines for the follower of Christ or in the Christian life. It's not an easy practice. We're distracted very easily. We live in a noisy, busy world, as Tasha was mentioning in her announcement, where rest and silence and are, uh, seem very elusive in our context. And so uh, silence can actually be a practice. And so uh, I actually have, and this is a, a handout for all of us, and this is our homework this week. This is a, a, actually a guided practice. You can take 5 to 10 minutes doing this, or you can take 15 to 20 minutes or 30 minutes if you're super spiritual. Um, but it's essentially an outline for uh, how to sit in silence with God. And it gives us some tips and some instructions on how we can do that. And so I'm going to pass this around to you. This is kind of a super practical way of engaging this uh, text and the questions that God asks Job. Um, you, some of you might need reading classes for these. I know I would. I just tried to fit it on a page, a half a page. Sorry about that. Um, and that was actually taken from a website called practicetheway.org. And so um, that website should be right on the top of the page as well if you want to go a little bit more in-depth into that. But I actually just thought we could take a moment and uh, practice some silence together as a church community. And then I'd encourage you to find some space uh, this week uh, to create a moment or a few moments of silence in your own life, cultivating this practice in your own life. Uh, studies show that if you don't do it in seven days, you don't do the homework, you will never do it. And so I'd encourage you uh, to prioritize this in the next seven days. Take some time for silence in your life. But let's, let's, uh, let's do a little quick two-minute exercise, two-minute drill uh, exercise of this together. And uh, then... Hopefully you will get a little bit of a taste and want to come back to this later in the week. And so um, I'd invite you to, find, to uh, make yourself comfortable in your seat. It's kind of a movie theater seating. It's prone to making you comfortable. Um, you close your eyes if you feel comfortable as well. I'm going to spend some time in silence. And uh, as we do, uh, the first thing I want you to pay attention to is just breathing in and breathing out slowly. Breathing in and breathing out slowly. Um, and as you do, uh, start to pay attention to your breathing. As you breathe in, pay attention to that breath coming in. As you breathe out, pay attention to that breath coming out. And treat the thoughts that come to your mind the same way that you would that breath. May they come in and out. It's easy to get distracted, so if you do, uh, that's okay. This isn't a test. It's a practice. Spend some time doing that. As you continue breathing uh, in and breathing out, 
Um, I would like you to focus on the presence of God in our midst. For some of you, it might be helpful to imagine perhaps the Father sitting across the room from you in a chair. And the Father's eyes are gazed upon you with love. And you're embraced just as you are. You can open your eyes. This is a short practice, hopefully to give you a taste. And uh, often it's helpful to conclude in a prayer. And so if you'd pray this with me, um, God, I give my life to you. I give my day to you. You can say that with me. God, I give my life to you. I give my day to you. And we release our, our lives to God in that moment. And so the point of uh, silence as a spiritual practice is just being with God, being with Jesus. Um, there are ways that you can expound on that, but that's just a quick introduction to the idea of, of silence as a spiritual practice and as a part of following Jesus in uh, our lives. So the book of Job ends with God giving Job a gift. And he actually, everything that Job lost is then doubled, which can be confusing because the answer to all the suffering, we're not given an answering, a direct answer to all of those questions. And it can be confusing because the whole book just, uh, there's a whole book making the argument that Job's suffering wasn't a consequence. And so we might be prone to think that then his blessing was a reward but I just want to make known that that is not the point of the book of Job at all. God in his wisdom, for some reason that we don't know, decides to give Job a gift. It's not a reward for passing a test. The whole book just made the point that his suffering wasn't the consequence of sin or suffering. God in his wisdom gives him a gift. We don't know why, but we do know this as Job concludes. Because of God's questioning of Job, Job has attained a wisdom that when circumstances come our way in life, good or bad, Job has become the type of person who learns to trust God in his wisdom. And so he can accept the gift and embrace the gift. And he can also embrace the mystery and be embraced by, and learn to be embraced by God in the midst of pain and suffering. And so... A benediction as we conclude this morning. May we, may you all learn how to praise in the midst of whatever circumstance comes your way. May you have the courage to speak your doubt, frustration, and pain to God in honesty. And may you have the quiet wisdom that learns to embrace and be embraced by God 
in the midst of whatever comes your way. Let's pray together. We're going to finish in worship this morning. God, I thank you for your grace and your goodness and your presence that is here with us in this room. God, we lift up anyone in this room who might be in the middle of, the suf- of suffering. And they're in the midst of rage and doubt and confusion. God, I pray that your presence would meet them where they are. That you have the patience to be with them, to hear them, and to meet them and be the giver of grace and peace. God, we thank you that you, in your mystery, are revealed to us through the person of Jesus. God, I pray that Jesus would be revealed to us and would reveal to us your love, your goodness, your compassion, even as we wrestle with things we don't understand, even as we wrestle with our own suffering. May you be with us. Give us the courage to speak honestly with you and give us the wisdom to know when to be silent and learn how to embrace and be embraced by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. 